Good morning. Good morning. I love that the chorus of that song, Make Us a House of Prayer. We're going to start by prayer um, right now. Let's go before the Lord. Lord, we quiet our hearts before you in a moment of silence. Come Holy Spirit. Lord, we wait expectantly to hear from you. Speak to us spirit to spirit this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you use your word to convict hearts, to quicken spirits, to create in us a hunger for the presence of the living God. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bible, so we are a BYOB church stands for Bring Your Own Bible. Uh, let's, let's open back up to that passage in 1 Peter. So 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll give you a minute. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. It doesn't really matter what translation you have. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 3 this morning. We love having our kids up here reading. We think it's just such a, such a sweet addition to the life of our community, um, especially as you get to watch them learn how to read with us, which is beautiful. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. As I said uh, last week, I'm a World War II historian, uh, sort of a fan. And so I always like to, as, as often as I can, pull from anecdotes. Um, and so I'm going to start this morning just by reading this quote from Viktor Frankl. He was an Austrian psychiatrist and a Holocaust survivor. He was a Jewish, uh, well-known Jewish psychiatrist before the war. And the, the year after the war, he published a book called Man's Search for Meeting, which recounts how hope for the future was the single most important factor in determining whether his fellow prisoners survived the Nazi concentration camps. And it says this, he wrote, the prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future, was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and become subject to mental and physical decay. He had lost hope. 
Recently on Netflix, a documentary was released about Louis Capaldi, who's a recent, sort of his recent rise to musical stardom. He's a young uh, Irish kid, Scottish maybe, who uh, was discovered on YouTube and all these things, and he, was, he skyrocketed to fame. And in this documentary, it, it sort of tracks on camera his, uh, the, the decline of his mental health. And as he recounts his own story, you can see uh, the effects that this fame and this sort of elevation to stardom has taken on his life. And uh, it, it reminds us that as a culture and as a, in a world right now, we are in a mental health crisis. And so much of this, as I, as I sort of pulled out of this documentary, is related to a loss of meaning and hope. We have an epidemic of hopelessness, meaninglessness, and uh, nihilism, disillusionment. These things are, are increasingly rampant in our world. And I think Jesus would say of us, I'm reminded of that verse that says, he saw the crowds and they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so my question this morning is, why do we lose hope? Why is it so hard? Why is hope so hard? As I spoke about last Thursday, on Maundy Thursday, uh, sort of a Maundy Thursday, Good Friday service, hope is hard in our world because we're confronted by sin everywhere we look. And what is sin? It was our desire to be our own God, our desire to take for ourselves the mantle of creator and God away from him and sit on the throne of our own lives. And because of this, we each have gone our own way. We each do what is right in our own eyes. And this has led to a catastrophic amount of suffering in the world. We're confronted by death, suffering, cruelty, humiliation, loss, rejection, and ultimately death is the final enemy. I think uh, in my years doing campus ministry on various campuses, one of the things that was always striking to me is that I would always ask the question, so do you believe our world is perfect? And without fail, everybody would say, no, there's something deeply flawed about our world. We all sense this pain and suffering intuitively. We sense that death is wrong. You know it, I know it, everybody knows it deep down. An oughtness, um, what one author calls an oughtness, it ought not to be this way. It ought not to be this way. And we all sense that, we know it. So Peter is writing... Uh, Peter, you remember Peter's experience. He's very familiar with the loss of hope. Remember Peter, who had lost so much hope in the garden, or after the garden, after Jesus' arrest, that he denied his Lord three times. He had become so hopeless at what was happening, so confused, so disoriented, he had lost his sense of, of fixedness and hope that he ended up denying his Lord. And I think when, when Peter said, no, I, I don't know him. I think he was telling the truth. I really don't know this man who has allowed himself to be arrested. I think that was a cry coming out of Peter's heart. Who are you, Lord, that you would let this happen to you? This isn't what I was expecting. He's writing this letter, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. He's writing these letters to the early church. And their experience of losing hope, their experience of suffering was, was very, very intense. Intense persecution. At one point, Christians were rounded up by the Emperor Nero and burned as torches at his garden parties. They paid a lot to follow Jesus. They paid with their lives. 
But I think more importantly, this letter has significance to us today because this is all of our experience. The fall, this act in, that we see in Genesis 3 of us turning away from God has led to suffering as a universal experience. Mankind was not made to live without hope. Hope is key. So what is it? So I'm going to, real quick, I'm going to talk about what is hope biblically? What, is, what does it mean to hope? One author says, hope is the conviction that something will happen in the future. But for that conviction to exist, there has to be some kind of basis. If I hope that the sun will rise tomorrow morning, that conviction does not come from knowledge of the future, but rather from the fact that every morning the sun has risen. And this is important because I want us to see now that there's a link between hope and faith. There's a link between hope, a strong hope that it can endure suffering, can endure death, and faith. He goes on to say, So too the hope of future life rests on the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. And on the reasonable inference that if God raised Jesus from the dead, he will also raise those who trust in Jesus. There's a link between hope and faith. So let's look at verse 3 through 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope. There's that word hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power. Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So what are these passages telling, what are these passages telling us? One thing is that faith is the bridge. Faith, faith is the bridge that connects what God did for you on the cross, what he's doing for you in the present, your present experience, and what is coming, the promised resurrection in the future. So faith stands in the middle and holds together God's past action and his future promises. Faith is the, the thing that holds those two things together. This is what Jesus did for me, so this is what he will do for me. I know it to be true. How do we know this to be true? Romans says, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So remember, past actions, present faith, future hope of resurrection. The resurrection is our unique hope. Our hope is a living hope because Jesus Christ is living. Amen? Amen. So in, evangel in evangelistic conversations, as I mentioned, I often hear this. Well, what about the Bible? How can I trust it? How, is, how do I know that the Bible is reliable? I hear, well, what about evolution? What about evolution and what does that have to do with my faith today? What do you say, what do you think about this? Or, or, or what about this thing over here? What about that? But this is always what I say. The crux of Christianity, we don't start with all of those questions, although they're valid questions. What we start with is Jesus' question to Peter, who do you say that I am? Tim Keller says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. So this is what I always point people to. Did Jesus rise or didn't he? Who do you say 
Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? So I, I would point them to the fact that I'm not a Christian because of all of these other questions. I'm a Christian because fundamentally, 2,000 years later, I'm still wondering, who is Jesus? And I've answered that question. He's, he's the Son of God. He's Lord. Jesus provokes in us this question, who, who am I? Who do you think that I am? The event of the resurrection is anchored in history. Modern mar- martyrs act solely out of their trust and beliefs that others have taught them. But these apostles, these first followers of Jesus, died for holding their own testimony that they had personally seen the risen Jesus. So this event was so anchored in history, so anchored in their minds that the, that the disciples all paid a heavy price. They all died for their, their belief that Jesus had risen from the dead. And this belief led to their deaths. And so I want you to see what he's saying here. The disciples of Jesus died for what they knew to be either true or false. In their minds, they knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so they were able to endure incredible persecution. In fact, Paul goes on to say, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. I'd say, and many others would agree with me, that the resurrection, this thing that we celebrated a week ago, is the most important event in human history. Even today, when we talk about what year it is, we're counting that from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The resurrection is the hinge, as Cameron taught last week, that all of history turns upon. The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in all of human history. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done this. And so I'm going to quote from C.S. Lewis here. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks us. We often ask, what are we to make of Christ? There is no question of what we can make of him. It's entirely a question of what he intends to make of us. You must accept or reject the story. So this is why I'm talking about this. Why are we talking about the resurrection the week after Easter? Because as Peter's telling us in this passage, all of life hinges on what happened that day. All of our lives All of the hope of our lives can be pulled back to, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Peter is teaching us how to apply the resurrection to our lives. So pastor, why spend so much time talking about it after Easter? Because I think if there's two words you remember from this sermon, I want you to remember these two words. Eternal perspective. Can you say that with me? Eternal perspective. Live in light of what is now true of you, and can never be taken from you. Peter lays out several consequences of the resurrection, so follow these with me. New birth. He says we've been given new birth into a living hope. What does this mean? Well, elsewhere in the New Testament, we we see that this means we've been adopted into God's family. 
We've been adopted into God's family. We, we talk about that all the time here, that we are children of God. Romans 8.15 says, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Your adoption to sonship. And by this spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. What does that mean? When a child was born biologically, you... you you may have heard this about adoption in the Roman Empire. When a child was born biologically, the parents had the option of disowning the child for a variety of reasons. The relationship, therefore, was not necessarily desired by the parent. So biological children could be disowned. Not so, however, if a child was adopted. So in Rome, adopting a child meant two things. It meant that that child was desired, freely chosen by the parent, And number two, that the child would be a permanent part of the family, a permanent part of God's family. Parents in Rome could not disown a child they adopted. So they received a new identity, a new last name, if you will, a new set, a new inheritance, if you will. Any prior commitments, responsibilities, and debts were erased. New rights, responsibilities were taken on. So we've been adopted into God's family, and beloved, this can't be taken from us. This is what Christ secured on the cross so that we could call on God the Father and it, with the same cry of Jesus, Abba, Father. For thousands of years, the children of Israel, they, they, they didn't have this intimate cry that Jesus released within us. Abba is like saying, Daddy. It's the deepest cry of the human heart to know that we are loved by God and that we're His children. As I look at my children, And I look at how they desire to come to me. They desire to spend time with me. They they desire to be around me. I, I oftentimes hear the Spirit speak to me and say, that's exactly what I want you to do with me. I want you to come to me like a child. This so new birth is a consequence of the resurrection. Secondly, an indestructible inheritance. In verse four, he says, You've been given an indestructible inheritance that cannot spoil or perish or fade. So what does that mean? Well, it means that, like a a friend of mine in New York City who who, uh, was incredibly wealthy, he said to me, I I said, what's the secret to your generosity? And he said, listen, I can't take anything with me when I die. That's the secret. None of this goes with me. The ancient uh, pharaohs were buried with a host of their possessions. When they were put in the tomb, They were surrounded by all of these earthly possessions that were sort of accumulated throughout their life, all their most precious things. And oftentimes their wives or their spouses uh, would, would be forcibly killed as well and buried with them so that they could all enter the afterlife together and have this great big party with all of these things. But we know that what happened was those things just sat there gathering dust of benefit to nobody. But God is saying this, and it's like Jesus said, you know, put, store up treasures for yourself in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy. Peter's just echoing that here. You've been given an inheritance through the resurrection because of this new life that you've received in Jesus that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. So trust in that. Have eternal perspective. Realize that all of the things that you're working toward, ultimately you're never going to see fulfillment in this life. Someone once said that life is an unfinished symphony. We'll never finish, we'll never see the end of our hard labor. And none of those things we can take with us when we die. We've been given an indestructible inheritance. Number five, or or number three, in verse five, we're protected 
by God's powder, power, shielded through faith by God's power is literally what it says. And that's an echo of Ephesians 6. It says, take on the shield of faith. This shield of faith, this trust in what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection and what that means for us in the present and what it means for us in the future actually protects us in the, here and now in our lives. So I want you to see this. The favor of the king is on your life. I said this in a sermon a few weeks ago or a month ago. Uh, imagine walking around knowing that the king, his favor and his protection is for you. Do you guys know what diplomatic immunity is? Dipl diplomatic immunity is a special status given to people who live in a foreign land who are no longer, as long as they live in that land, because of their protection, the protection that they have, from the land that they're from, that they're actually citizens of. As they, as they live in a foreign land, they're not subject to its laws or its systems of power. So what does this mean for us? It means that, that diplomatic immunity, immunity from the systems and laws and powers of, of this kingdom of darkness that we live in now, that we're free from that. That, that God's favor is on us. His protection is on us. As Jesus said, why fear those who can destroy your body? Live for the person who has power over the body and the soul and can destroy both in hell. Live for the king of the other kingdom. This is what Jesus is saying to us. And this is what Peter's saying in this passage. So take up the shield of your faith. Your faith protects you. New birth, indestructible inheritance, protected by God's power. And number four, verses six through seven. We have meaning, strength, and purpose in our suffering. So I want you to see this. This is, a, this is like a precious treasure. This is a precious treasure for each of us because we all will experience unique degrees of suffering in our lives. Some of us, it'll be a sickness that just lingers. Some of us, it'll be the, the nag of arthritis in our joints. For some of us, it'll be the loss of relationships or, or watching somebody wander away from God. Um, for all of us, death is the ultimate form of suffering. And I want you to see this, that even as we pursue healing for people's bodies here, everybody who received healing from Jesus when Jesus was walking around doing ministry ended up dying again. So this is the, the precious promise of Jesus' resurrection, that he gives us meaning, strength, and purpose in suffering. In fact, this verse, verse 8, says, inexpressible joy in the present midst of suffering and difficulty. The paradox, so listen carefully here, the paradox of the Christian faith is that Jesus conquered death through death. He conquered suffering forever through suffering. And he purchased for us the, the promise of resurrection life. So the paradox is that, that Christian faith has the power to go, grow stronger through suffering, not weaker. We know that suffering doesn't have to destroy our faith. In fact, the promises of Scripture over and over and over and over and over again are consider it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, for these are producing a weight of glory. They're, they're sharpening your faith. They're refining it as through fire, as Peter says in this passage. A quote from Jerry Sitzer, who lost his wife, his mother, and two of his children in a car accident in, at, at a single time. He wrote a book called A Grace Disguised. And this quote says, It is therefore not true that we become less through great loss. Unless we allow the loss to make us less, 
grinding our soul down until there's nothing left but an external self entirely under control of these circumstances. He says, loss can also make us more. In the darkness, because of Jesus, we can still find the light. In death, we can find life. It depends on whose we belong to. So, beloved, we have the promise that our, all of our suffering in this life has meaning. For God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Lastly, and most precious, and this is what it all hinges on, as Peter speaks of a living hope, a future glory. In verse 9, Peter says, This secures for you a final salvation. I'm going to invite Jay up here to minister as we move into a time of prayers of the people in just a moment. But I want us to see this. Romans 8.38 For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He covers everything in that passage. There's nothing left out of that list. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is the final insecure salvation. This is actually what, what gives you the strength to move through all of these things. Because this is not my final form. This is not the, death is not the last word. Because Jesus walked out of the grave that we celebrated last week, this is why we're talking about it the next Sunday, and we'll be talking about it the next Sunday, and the next Sunday, and then we'll be talking about this every time we gather together because, beloved, this is the foundation of our faith. Faith results in salvation at the end of the road. And so I, wanna, I want us to hear this. The strength of our faith is not the, 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 the strength of our faith lies not in the amount of faith we have, but in the object of our faith. So who's your faith in? It's not, oh man, I got to muster more faith so I can, I can feel better about my Christian walk. No, that's not what this is about. This is about the fact that you've placed your trust in Jesus and Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all who come to him. He says, all who come to me, I'll never cast out. So it's the object of your faith. It's Jesus. It's what he did on the cross. It's, rise, it's how he rose from the dead. Place your faith in Jesus. And if you haven't, I would invite you to do that now. Lastly, I want us to see this. This is my last point and my last encouragement. Christians living in light of eternity. So Christians living with eternal perspective are the most powerful apologetic for Jesus. So let me say that again. Christians living with eternal perspective are the most powerful apologetic for Jesus. Look, most people, and this is something I, I may have said before, but most people view sharing their faith with others like a, as a salesperson. Like, oh, I've got a, I've got a, yesterday, I'll just give you an example. Yesterday we had two salespeople come to our house and we were watching a movie with the kids and we were like, ugh. I'm not going to answer. And they rang again, and we're like, no, 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 just leave it, leave it. I don't, I don't want or need what they have. And most of us, when we think about our faith, and we think about 
what it would be like to share it with others. We, we believe ourselves to be like salespeople, giving somebody something that they don't need or don't want, and they're begrudgingly listening to us. But as we've seen, this is actually this is the thing that all human hearts long for. And so we're not salespeople. I want us to think about this differently. People who live their lives in light of eternity are more like an art gallery. Our brother Jay is about to have an art show in Ormond Beach in a couple weeks. And people are going to come to see the beauty of the works on display. People are going to come and they're going to they're want the things that are displayed because it's going to compel them. And so as we live our lives in this, this kingdom of the world, knowing that we're citizens of heaven, our lives are more like an art gallery. People look at our lives and say, whatever it is that you have, I want. Whatever it is you have, whatever is driving you, whatever's, whatever is compelling you to live like this, I'm so curious about, and that's what I want. Peter says later in this book, he says, be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. So if somebody came up and asked you today, what is the hope that you have? Why do you hope in Jesus? What would you say? Would you say, oh, well, you know, Jesus, you know, he's a great religious teacher. Would you say, I just, I love, I love the things that Jesus said. I, I love learning from him. Or would you say, no, my, my hope, the hope that I have is in Jesus' resurrection, because someday I know that even though my body will die, I'm going to be raised to new life with Jesus when he comes again. And so I want us to, as, as we close in prayer, and I'm going to invite up our leader for prayers of the people, I want us to reflect on this, and I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts. Come Holy Spirit. Lord, you were stirring in the hearts of all of us this longing for more of you. And so I pray that you would stir up and turn over stones, turn over and reveal things that are keeping us from intimacy with you. Lord, reveal other things that our hope has been placed in that are not you. Lord, today from your word, I pray that you would convict us and strengthen us to live from the hope of what your resurrection accomplished, that our hope is alive because you are alive. And Jesus, may we see and encounter the resurrected Lord. I think of the people on the, way, on the road to Emmaus. They were looking in, in confusion at the scriptures and, and wondering at what has happened and what has taken place. And they had an encounter with the resurrected Lord that changed their lives. Would you show up in our midst? Would you reveal yourself? to be who you are, who you say you are. And if there's anybody in this room, anybody in our lives that has not responded to this question, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that I am? Lord, may we cry out, you are, you are Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Lord, I just pray for them, and I encourage you to, to pray as well for the unreached of the earth. Mm. Pray for the Muslim communities in uh, Rwanda and in Mozambique who have not yet been reached with the gospel, Lord, that you would uh, continue to send your laborers into that harvest and the power of your spirit. Yes, Lord, we lift up the laborers that are already present in these Muslim communities, especially because Ramadan fasting is going on right now and people's hearts are open to spiritual things. They're open, they're longing for a connection with God, and we know that there's nothing to be found there, Lord. There's nothing to be found but judgment and condemnation at the feet of Allah. But Lord, at the feet of Jesus, you are calling them to bring their lives, bring their burdens, and lay them down and come and follow you. So we pray that you would release this, Lord. Release dreams and visions in the Muslim community.